I can't pull the PowerPoint up because it wants me to answer my phone over in my office to authenticate who I am. <laughs> so if you have your uh, PowerPoint pulled up, just follow along. If you printed out the outline, just follow along that way. Um, hopefully today I can figure out um, what we can do because it's something new they started last week and I didn't even think about it coming over here. So. <laughs> Uh, but I'm just going to do the, it's on Blackboard Under Skills Review, it's just the outline for restraints is what we're covering today. <clears throat> Before I get started, I, in the morning, <clears throat> I actually have an appointment at 8. I'm not sure if I'll be here right at 9 o'clock, so those of you that signed up for 9. Um, of course, class starts at 9.30, so and if you do your 30 minutes, it's going to make you late for class. So I don't know if you want to change it. It's up to you, but I have an appointment in the morning as well. The lab closed till nine, so. Um, okay, definition. So restraint. The definition in your book. It, it's kind of a long one, so I just in the if you go in the back, it kind of sums it up. It's a short one. That a restraint is any device that aids in the immobilization of a patient or a patient's extremities. Uh, this is usually uh, there's different examples in the chapter of your book and the readings that talks about uh, the different types of restraints. It also talks about chemical restraints. Chemical restraints though will never be part of your patient's care. So, um, and they're really cutting back on those in the hospital settings and even long-term care settings where there's lots of documentation that has to take place in order to uh, medicate your patient. So just know that the chemical restraints and medication are not part of the patient's um, problem or standard, standard care. Uh, goals for restraints, of course, the goal is for all patients to be in a restraint-free environment. Um, that's hopefully the goal one day is that your patient won't have to have restraints. Uh, the reason why they restraints are used as a last resort is because of the complications. Uh, those are listed on your outline. There's physical complications such as death due to strangulation or asphyxiation. Uh, pressure ulcers because your patient can't move in bed. Constipation, again, because they're not up moving around. Pneumonia, urinary and fecal incontinence, urinary tension, contractures, and nerve damage. Um, if they're on too tight or if your patient's pulling very long, it could damage some of the nerves in their um, wrists, ankles, or wherever it is they're restrained. So, uh, some psychosocial uh, complications, of course, is a loss of self-esteem, humiliation, fear, and anger. Um, this is patients incur less injuries if they're left unrestrained. So. A lot of facilities are trying to go to a restraint-free environment. Uh, sometimes it's not possible, but that, that's their ultimate goal. Uh, the regulatory guidelines for restraints are set forth by the Commission, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, and then there's agency-specific policies and procedures. Anytime you go to work anywhere, that's the best place to start is know your agency's policies and procedures, whether it be hospital setting or long-term care or wherever it may be. Because it, even though the law uh, may not be as strict on some things, the facility may be a little bit stricter. Mm -hmm. 
Use of restraints must meet one of the following objectives. So one of these things needs to be in place in order for uh, restraints to be considered. That it, <clears throat> to reduce the risk of patient injury from falls. So if your patient's a fall risk and you cannot keep them in the bed, they may choose to use restraints. Uh, to prevent the interruption of therapies such as traction, IV infusions, NG2 feedings, or Foley catheterization. So if your patient has all these tubes and they're confused and they're constantly pulling them out and you're having to restart their IV or re-put in the Foley, I mean, that's gonna cause damage. So sometimes you may have to restrain them for that purpose. Um, to reduce the risk of injury to others by the patient. So if they are someone who is constantly being combative uh, and injuring the nurses or you know, maybe they're a danger to other patients, so they may be restrained for that reason. Some things that in order to use restraints is they must be clinically justified, which means that one of these things above there that we just talked that I just talked about has to take place. Uh, it has to be part of the prescribed medical treatment and plan of care. So if your patient's in restraints, then that means that it's going to flip into you gotta make sure you have a plan of care for that. Uh, a physician's order is required based on face-to-face -face assessment. So that physician needs to come up and face-to-face -face assess that patient and order the restraints. Um, sometimes if they are a danger to the staff or another patient or even themselves, uh, you can call them, but then they have to come within a certain time frame. All of that's in your book. So make sure you read that, what the stipulations are as far as um, the requirements as far as the orders go. Um, of course, your order needs to include the type of restraint, the location, the specific behaviors as the reason to why you're using the restraint, and a limited time frame. Uh, usually that is depending on the age of the patient and the facility, but uh, restraint orders are usually no more than 24 hours at a time. So every 24 hours, the restraint order has to be renewed. Um, assessment. So as the nurse, some of the things you're going to need to assess once your patient is in restraints is you need to assess your patient's physical and mental status and prescribed medications. You want to obtain a healthcare provider's order, patient, family consent, and explain the purpose of the restraints and what you are doing. You want to inspect the area where the restraint will be placed, noting any tubes, devices, skin, sensation, and range of motion. So make sure that when you are putting your patient in restraint that you're not putting them over tubes or IV lines or anything like that it can include. Um, ensure patient is comfortable and in proper body alignment. And then assess body prominences and pad if necessary. We talked about that when we talked about positioning and turning your patient. Make sure that, you know, that they have the proper protection under the bony prominences, which is the heels, the coccyx, elbows, uh, you know, the back, shoulders, any place that they may be laying with a bony prominence. Different types of restraints. Okay, there's a belt restraint, uh, extremity restraint, mitten restraint, vest restraint, opposing head and elbow restraint. Now the vest restraints, they don't use any, I don't think they use them in facilities anymore because those are one of the higher ones that risk the patient kind of wiggles out of them and they get it up around the neck and get strangled so they don't use those as much. Um, 
Implementation, restraint implementation. Of course, you want to make sure you have the proper size of restraint because if it's too big and your patient can get their hands out of it, you don't want, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to serve its purpose. Uh, secure restraints with a quick release tie. Do not tie them in a knot. Uh, secure restraint to the bed frame or the frame of the wheelchair or the chair. Do not tie the restraint to a part of the bed that moves independently from the bed frame. So don't tie it to the side rail because then every time you raise and lower the side rail, it's going to pull on those restraints. Um, <clears throat> you want to assess for proper replacement. Note skin integrity, the pulses, temperature, color, sensation in the restrained body part every two hours or according to agency policy. When your patient is placed in restraints, most facilities have a form that has to be filled out and you have to assess your patient every two hours, which means you remove the restraint, you check the skin, you make sure they have a pulse, make sure the, the, they can still wiggle the fingers, it's still pink, warm and dry, and uh, do some range of motion and then put the restraint back on. Um, if it's someone who is combative or at high risk, usually it's every 15 minutes. Uh, evaluation, you want to reassess it, like we said, at least every two hours or more frequently as determined by specific agencies. And like I said, you want to remove that restraint, reassess the patient and the need for the restraint, uh, reassess the area restrained, and perform range of motion, toileting, feeding activities, etc. You can assess whether or not you feel that your patient still needs restraints if you think that they uh, are okay then you need to contact the physician and make sure that you get an order to take them off. Uh, documentation, of course documentation will include the behaviors that necessitated the application of the restraint. So what, was they, what were they doing that um, negated the, you having to use restraints. Restraint alternatives attempted in the patient's response. In your book, there's a page, and I'll give you that page number, and then the video you watch talks about trying different things. So back rubs, massage therapy, music, uh, there's all kinds of different techniques you can try. Uh, the type and location of restraint and the time it was applied. Condition of the body part restraint. The time of assessments and releases. Specific assessments related to orientation, oxygenation, skin integrity, circulation, and positioning, and then evaluation of the client's response. Uh, delegation. Uh, some of the questions, and even in your extended text, it says, can this be delegated? The application of restraints can be delegated, but as the nurse, you're still responsible for assessing client's safety needs selection of appropriate alternative interventions, and evaluation of effectiveness of the restraint. Now with that being said, I'll always make sure, again with your policies and procedures, if, it can, if they allow it to be delegated. Because even though the book says that parts of it, that some of it can, wherever you work may say no. So, um, of course as the nurse, you're also responsible for an ongoing assessment to prevent complications. And then as the nurse, you would direct the UAP, which is uh, unlicensed assistive personnel, uh, that they need to let you know or they need to inform the nurse of any redness, excoriation, or constriction of circulation. 
that they ask for assistance if the client has mobility restrictions that will affect how to remove or reapply a restraint and the change the client's position, provide range of motion, skin care, toileting, and opportunities for socialization. Restraint alternatives, of course, again, your video talks about uh, using restraint alternatives. Uh, those are in your book on page 406. In the box 2713 is a whole list of, of alternatives that you should try before uh, resorting to restraints. Again, like I said, restraints are a last resort. You don't just automatically, my patient's combative, I'm gonna put them in restraints. You would have to try all the alternatives first. And most facilities now have a form that you have to fill out to show, and you have to document what you tried before you put, put your patient in restraints. So, does anybody have any questions? So today in lab, uh, we will cover these. I have some different examples of restraints and uh, you will uh, be practicing how to put them on property, how, what to look for, and uh, different types of um, assessments and those kinds of things. Um, I am finished. Professor Seagraves and Professor Bailey are back here. Um, you want me to go ahead and log out of the computer, ladies?